All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Making the Argument. I'm excited for today's conversation because I'm always excited for these conversations, but today it's because it's about President's Day, about which I don't know a lot. Now, I have been doing a little bit of research and I'm really hoping that we're able to get into the history. Hopefully, we'll be able to look at presidents like FDR, LBJ, and maybe even Obama and possibly Biden, but we'll see where the conversation goes. It's going to be pretty, pretty conversational and casual. Looking forward to it. Hopefully, Nick will be able to join us in a little while. Let's go ahead and get into it, Hamilton. If you had President's Day off yesterday, well, lucky for you, we did not. But anyway, maybe maybe we shouldn't have off for President's Day. What do y'all think? Um, when I went to James Madison University, we did not have President's Day off, which is hilarious. I will say this, all right? I'm a little bit salty still today about what happened yesterday. Oh, no. oh my. And that is the fact that I took my son. He needs to go open an account. Yeah. I needed to deposit a check anyway. So... We drove 45 minutes to our bank because there's not one in our little town and they were closed because they observed President's Day. And I was like, that's some oh. garbage right there. I was so irritated. <laughs> so, yeah, Sorry. I wish they wouldn't have. So I, I made a trip for no reason. Well, yesterday. if you if you have a story about something that happened on President's Day that was unexpected, let us know in our volley chat, which you can join at the link in the description of this podcast. It is our community chat. We have about, I think, just under 150 members there. Uh, we'd love to have conversations, go back and forth about different things that we find interesting, as well as the topics for this podcast. And we'd love to have your help choosing what podcast we do next. And the best place to do that is in volley. So click that link in the description, join us there, and we look forward to seeing you. Yeah, so I'm excited mostly to talk about the history of President's Day because from my research recently, I was just noticing that they went out of their way to make sure that it was always a three-day weekend, that it was always a Monday so that the banks could observe it and frustrate Tina in the process, unfortunately. <laughs> um, many of us forget that the banks are closed and like the doctor's office won't get back to us. And it's kind of frustrating if you don't remember that it's going to happen. Um, but it is supposed to commemorate a combination of presidents' birthdays. It's supposed to commemorate Lincoln's birthday, which, according to Christian, I believe is the 12th, and also George Washington's birthday, which was the 20th. So they just made it the third Monday of February, which is a little bit of background for you. But I wanted to talk specifically about the institution of the presidency, and I thought a really interesting way to start talking about that would be to ask Christian how he feels about FDR. 
What do you think about FDR, Christian? Um, we have briefly talked about him on this podcast before. We've also done several why minutes on him. In fact, one relatively recently about why farmers are consistently paid not to farm. Quick question. I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. What, what, Christian, what do you think people generally believe about FDR? That he was a good president or a bad president? So the way that it goes, as somebody who came out of the public school system not that long ago, is that it's usually taught that, oh, you know, Herbert Hoover was a disaster. The Great Depression happened. Hoover didn't want to do anything about it. Everything got worse. And then FDR came in in a landslide, and he finally did something about it. And he saved us from the Great Depression with the New Deal. He made a bunch of new jobs. He built up the military and then ended up helping us win World War II when we got attacked by Japan. And therefore, FDR is ranked as, you know, one of the greatest presidents who has ever lived. He's up there with George Washington. And... Almost all of that is a myth, with the exception of us winning World War II. We did actually do that, but outside of that, almost all of that is a myth. He did not end the Great Depression. The Great Depression arguably got worse because of him, although it first got right. worse because, by the way, Herbert Hoover did not do nothing. If he had done nothing, the Great Depression wouldn't have happened. The problem was is that he did try to do something, and everything that Hoover tried to do, FDR doubled down on after he got into office. In fact, many of FDR's brain trust uh like a group of unofficial advisors that he that he cobbled together after he got into office actually went on the record and said most of the ideas that they were throwing around when FDR got into office were originally ideas that Hoover had been pushing when he was in office and that's con conveniently left out of the story all the time when they talk about how Hoover apparently was too much of a laissez-faire capitalist who didn't want to do anything no that was coolidge Hoover was the big government guy that was a huge proponent of like the Department of the of, of Commerce and Labor. Um, back then it was Commerce and Labor. They ended up separating it into two separate departments. Um, in fact, that actually the separation might have taken place around the time that Hoover was around. But but long story short, Hoover was a mid-level bureaucrat for most of his career. Um, had deep connections with the private sector, and he was a corporatist. He thought that if you merge the state and and the corporate sector into one and you adopt a quasi-fascist form of economics, not politics. I'm not saying that that Hoover was, you know, like Hitler Mussolini on the political side. He wasn't about to invade Ethiopia. But um on the economic side, he he was a big time corporatist. We we would say, using 1930s terminology, that he had a lot of fascist policies when it came to economics. Again, I'm not saying on the social and political side, but on the economic side, absolutely. And FDR followed him. And I mean, just look at the record. The, the, the Great Depression carried on long after FDR got into office. Um, all of his you know, alphabet agencies that he, he came up with, none of them actually solved the problem. In fact, in many ways, they perpetuated the problem, um, especially because when you look at the depression of the early 1930s versus the depression of the early 1920s, the reaction between the government leaders in power was radically different. When the United States had a major market correction, major market crash, and a major recession in the early 1920s, the reaction from Coolidge, who was vice president at the time, and Warren G. Harding, who was the president at the time, Harding gets a terrible rap, by the way, side note. He's considered one of the worst presidents ever because of his own personal life. He had a bunch of like scandals. He was like cheating on his wife and all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff. But his economic record is actually quite good. And it's also quite good because he had he had Coolidge as his vice president that was pushing him on a lot of this stuff. But 
the reaction from Harding in the early 1920s was not, oh, we need to massively expand government and spend billions of dollars and create new agencies and redistribute wealth and pass a bunch of laws. His reaction was the market's going to sort this out. And it did. And for a while, everybody was like, you must do something. And he refused to do so. And the market recovered. And you ended up having one of the largest periods of economic growth ever, the roaring 20s, because of it. And then in the early 1930s, you get the exact same thing, right? Except the reaction from the government was radically different this time. And the result was 12 years of one of the worst periods in American history to be alive. And so I have a really, really poor opinion of FDR. Nick could go a lot more into detail about this. By, by the way, called, I need to interject here. Nick will be joining us here shortly. Yeah, yeah he's actually shortly. currently in the Courts of Justice Committee in the Virginia House of Delegates right now. Um, but he'll be out of that in probably just a few minutes and joining us later in this podcast. Yeah, and, and I want to get his take. Yeah, I, I'd love to, because Nick has talked about this before. There's a book called FDR's Folly for those that are actually interested in reading a lot more about the details of FDR's you know, administration and his program and the record and how the narrative that we are fed today, mostly through the public school system, is completely at odds with what actually happened. And the most egregious of the lies is this idea that FDR stepped in after Hoover did nothing. That's a complete lie. Hoover did. Gotcha. He laid the groundwork for FDR. So that's FDR's folly. That's the title of that book, right, Christian? That is correct. Yeah. So I just would, I just wanted to ask Christian a little bit about trust busting. He mentioned Hoover and I might have the timeline all wrong because I can never keep the Roosevelt straight. But if I recall correctly, one of the Roosevelt's was doing a bunch of trust busting that I was wondering if was linked to what Herbert Hoover was doing. You were talking about how he was like sort of fascist with how he wanted the state to be so involved with the private sector. Was that a factor with all of the trust busting and trying to break up the monopolies? So with Hoover, it wasn't so much breaking apart business as it was bringing business under the wing of the federal government. Um, he wasn't really interested in trust busting. He was more interested in cozying up to them and incorporating them into his bigger grand schemes of how the government was going to basically run the economy. But it wasn't going to run the economy by nationalizing everything like, say, in the Soviet Union, where there was no private enterprise and there was no property rights. He was going to be running the economy by basically delegating certain industries to certain companies and be like, well, you know, this company is going to be running this and this company is going to be running that. And they're all going to be regulated and overseen by the federal government, but it's going to be a public private partnership. That's a phrase that you see a lot of people use all the time. And usually when you hear that phrase, it's a, uh, that's the, the red flags. Go it's basically off. cronyism. It's cr yes. It's cronyism. Um, but the, the trust busting really picked up steam under Teddy Roosevelt, who was FDR's fifth cousin. And Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, he was president about a generation before FDR in the early 1900s. Right, right. He succeeded uh, William McKinley after McKinley was shot and killed. Um, and I think McKinley was killed in 1901. Um, so at the very beginning of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt was in office. And Teddy was the first one who like really got into the like hardcore trust busting. And what is it? Uh, basically, it's it's using the federal government to break up companies, right? Like, like it, I mean, right. Standard Oil was broken up in this time period, yeah. right? And and again, the argument is usually, well, you can't have a, a free market if you have a monopoly. Fair enough. But the only monopolies that have ever existed in history are government-sanctioned monopolies. Not even Standard Oil was a monopoly. At its peak, Standard Oil controlled about 80 to 90% of the oil market. And yet, when it was broken up, 
years after it peaked in terms of market share, it was declining rapidly in terms of market share. Its revenues were still growing. The company was growing, but its portion of the overall market was on the decline. And the reason why is because ultimately in an actual genuine free market, you can't control 100% of the market everywhere. It's physically impossible to do unless you have the state helping you. Uh, um, but what's a good example of the state helping a corporation to capture 100% of market um, share? The British colonization of India was done by a corporation, the East India Company. Interesting. It, literally, it was a corporation that colonized an entire subcontinent because they had state sanctioning. And I mean, you want to talk about an extreme example? They had state troops, right? Like the, the, the British Empire gave the East India Company not just a, a government-sanctioned monopoly to control all trade in East India. I mean, they gave them the military weaponry to carve out their own quasi-state within a state. Mm. And the East India Company ruled India all the way until the Great Indian Mutiny in the late 1850s when there was a massive uprising within India against the... Um, the East India Company, it was put down a couple years later. It was a very bloody rebellion. And when it was finally put down, Queen Victoria nationalized the East India Company and directly annexed India into the, the British Empire, which is why she ended up taking on the title Empress of India, because it was at that point, it was part of the British Empire, not just part of a company that was part of the British Empire. So we've talked a lot about FDR now and Roosevelt, and we've mentioned Coolidge, but we think very differently about Coolidge than we do FDR. Why is that? They were completely different people in every single respect. I mean, Calvin Coolidge once said that the business of America is business. He was just an ardent free capital, you know, admirer through and through. He genuinely believed that people can become richer and freer if the government gets out of their way. And under Coolidge, Coolidge to this day, 100 years later, was the last man ever to leave the Oval Office with a smaller-sized federal government and federal budget than what he inherited. Last one. Would that would that be even possible today no. for a president to... E no, no. Even if Calvin Coolidge was the Republican nominee in 19... Or, I was going to say 1924, which he was. Even if Calvin Coolidge was the Republican nominee in 2024, a century after he won re-election in a landslide in 1924, and even if he won... Um, he, he would not be able to achieve what he did a hundred wow. years ago. Um, it, it, it it's just impossible. Even if you have that mindset, which I mean, we haven't had that mindset even within the Republican party in quite some time. Um, even if you had that mindset, you, you would not be able to shrink the, the size it, it's, it, it the, the machine is now self-sustaining and, and you would need a radical change in order to, to, shrink it. I what, mean, what are the aspects of that machine? Like, tell me what the parts are. I mean, all the different aspects of the federal bureaucracy, the, the federal bureaucracy is now larger in terms of, uh, um, employees than the entire size of the United States. When we got our independence, there's, there's more people working for the federal government today than there were people living in the United States when mm -hmm. we became an independent nation. And that just wasn't the case in the 1920s. We were starting to move in that direction, but we had not, I mean, we had started to move in that direction under Wilson, but I mean, Coolidge pulled us back from the brink that we then went over when FDR and Hoover came along. Um, and then again, when LBJ came along in the 1960s. Well, let me ask you this. It seems to me that the reason why Republicans today may not, that are running for president may not hold the same philosophy that Coolidge did 
Is that because what we have wanted and what we have desired from a president has also changed? Absolutely. I mean, Coolidge today, if he was teleported today, he would be like, why do we have a Department of Education? Why do we have a Department of Energy? I mean, Coolidge didn't even really like the existence of the Federal Reserve. He, he didn't have the votes to get rid of it or anything like that, but he didn't like the Federal Reserve. He didn't like the Commerce Department. There was he did not like the FTC. He, the, there were all these like government agencies that regulated sectors of the economy, and he either stripped them of their power and defunded them, or he appointed people to these positions that did nothing with the position that they had and did and, and meddled had no meddling in the free market. Coolidge would come along today and he would propose something like abolishing the Department of Education and he would be attacked within his own party, which is ironic because it wasn't that long ago that the Republicans actually had in their in their platform an abolishment of the Department of Education. That was something that Republicans were running on in the 1980s. And then suddenly by the time George Bush comes along, we pivot from advocating for eliminating federal intervention in education to doubling down on federal intervention within education and passing things like no child left behind. So I like, and, and I mean, are we as much of a big government party as we were in the, in the Bush era? Probably not, but I, I mean, we're not even close to where we were at under well, Coolidge. Tina, let me ask you this. Are there anything that you see that Republicans today think is the role of the government that shouldn't be? Uh, <laughs> everything. I mean, every time anyone has an issue with their neighbor or someone down the road or whatever, their first instinct is to run to the government. It's everything. Even if education. it's just like the city. Right. It's education. Oh, I mean, there's trash on the side of the road. The government needs to do something about this trash on the side that's of the road. A, that's a good example. It's like, really? How about you go and pick it up? You live here too. Like yeah. everybody lives here. I know you didn't drop it, but- Stuff happens and the wind blows and it blows things around. So if you don't like it, go pick it up. What's wrong? Like, why do we got to run to the government for this? Um, so, I mean, same with, you know, education is a huge one to me. Um, you know, also anything charity related used to be, you know, churches and civic groups did that. And now everybody frets over the idea of losing some of these entitlement things and, they're like, well, if, if the government didn't do it, who would do it? And so we've trained people to think that nobody, nobody will do this if the government doesn't do it. And so everyone outsources all their charity to the government too. It, it's interesting. Go ahead, Lydia. I'm just going to say that's true. And it's really interesting. It really speaks to how far we've gone from personal responsibility mindset to kind of this nanny state mindset. You literally see this with the way parents now raise their kids and how kids are turning to, for example, the administration of colleges to protect them from hurt feelings. Like this is in every aspect now of American life. And I think it can, it can be directly linked back to the power that we ascribe the government and the state as a whole, which I personally view as a huge problem. I blame it for a lot of the cultural issues that we have today, but Hamilton, I will defer to you. Oh, I was just going to make a quick comment that when we aren't able or choose not to participate in activities like picking up trash on the side of the road, the less and less of those things we participate in, the more likely it is for us to imagine that it is impossible for anyone other than the government to solve certain problems. Yeah, I think there's definitely a snowball effect there where we start to assume 
only the government can fix this. And as time goes by, the government becomes the only, you know, the only institution we see working on it. And we forget that we have autonomy to make some of this stuff happen ourselves. And we give up our personal control over what happens in our little corner of the world. Now, I know the federal government is at a way higher level than we're at. In fact, I'm constantly preaching about how people shouldn't be focused on the federal government as such. Which is kind of why I'm a little bit, sometimes a little bit frustrated with President's Day because presidency is probably the last thing that any of us should be worried about. It's just one of three branches of the American government, and it's so far removed from us that it will never have a real practical effect on most of our lives. The people who will have a practical effect on our lives are people like Nick, who's currently in Richmond and taking action for the people of Virginia there, and other people at the state level, the mayor of the town in Ohio, who's currently battling to try to get FEMA funds to help them recover from that horrible disaster, and other people like that. Like Kamala Harris has nothing to do with any of that. Even Poop. Pete, excuse me, Pete Buttigieg is is awfully far removed from that stuff, but that's who we instinctively turn to. We're like, well, who's going to fix the problem? Can I and actually point fair. out, like, mm-hmm. yeah, this yeah. is one thing that I, I probably, I haven't really talked about this, like, on Twitter and stuff like that, because I probably would get a lot of flack for it. But, like, I see all these people that are like, where's Pete Buttigieg? What's he doing about this? And I, part of me wants to be like, should we really be relying on Pete Buttigieg right. to fix this train derailment problem? Like, when did we get to this point where Pete Buttigieg doesn't know the first thing about railroads? <laughs> right. Like, like, and we know that, and that's part of the problem. And the reaction from these conservatives on Twitter is basically, where's the Department of Transportation to fix this problem? We should be getting rid of the Department of Transportation, yeah, not relying on the federal government to fix this problem. I think problem. sometimes people are really just trying to point out how inefficient the Department of, Edu- of of Transportation is and the fact that we all pay through the nose in taxes and we look at things like this and go, yeah. this is exactly what you point to every time you say you need more money. That's actually you, a fair you say, point. Oh, these bridges are going to collapse if we don't get more of your money. And, you know, that... That is literally what the function is for. No, that that's a totally fair and point. And so people are going, why am I paying all this money then? And But the other thing too is I think one of the reasons why people run to the government for absolutely every freaking thing, it's not because they don't think the private sector can do it. It's because they can't compel other people to do it for them, yeah. but the government can. So they want the government to compel their neighbors to do the job, or they want the government mm-hmm. to compel people to comply. And really what it is, is they're using the force of government. That's a much easier tool. It's a much bigger bludgeon. Yeah. I mean, anytime they want something funded, it's like, oh, it's only like one penny on your property taxes. One penny? You can't spare one penny for this. Yeah, but then you get 200. Exa- it's a death by a thousand cuts. It, it is. And then and the issue is, is that, yeah, um, it's only a penny, whatever. Well, why don't you just go around and get everybody to give you a penny? And no. If you, if, if, what, and not only that, it's well, not a penny. It's a penny hap- on every hundred. So well, What happens, right. Tina, when I can't get everyone to give me a penny? You you run to the government apparently. Well, maybe I mean, it just if your idea was so freaking good, that's couldn't what I'm she saying. get some buy-in? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, if you but, if, if I could not convince you that you giving me a penny is going to make your life better, then should yeah. this even be happening? People don't understand voluntary right. anymore. Voluntary yeah. is is so far from their well, mind. I think that that's a super valuable point. And I also wanted to bring up that the left has done a incredibly good job of making the action of the government seem as if it is the collective action of the American people. Right. That this is all of us on behalf of all American people working together in unison to achieve a better nation for all of they us. They think society is government and government is society. They think that the, the two are one and the same, when yeah. in reality they're not. Well, Lydia, I think we've gotten kind of off topic here a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We have a no, little, no. but it's been fun. We started with a history and now we got into kind of the more personal, cultural responsibility aspects. And I think that's a great direction to go in because what I really wanted to talk about in this episode was how the, the vision of the presidency has evolved since the founding of the United States. Now, the president, from my understanding, when the U.S. was first established, wasn't exactly a figurehead. He was technically one of the branches of government, but he was a very secondary branch of government. And Christian, you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't talked about this. Yeah, he definitely a wasn't a figurehead. Um, right. you're, you're, you're right on that because the president, you know, he has control over the military. He's the commander in chief of it. He's the chief executive. He, you know, it, it's his signature that's required for a bill to become law and he can veto it. So Congress has a significant amount of power. But when our country was first formed, our Constitution created this executive office because under the Articles of Confederation, there was no executive office and it was a mess. And so the idea was, is that the presidency would be something that kind of unites the entire country. Because the entire country collectively votes for that president through the Electoral College, and he's supposed to be representing the interests of the entire nation. This is also part of the reason that um, early on there was a big issue with um, Virginia electing so many of, of the, the early presidents because other states felt like that Virginia was dominating the rest of the country. When you look at, at the early presidents of the United States, Adams is like the only one that's not from Virginia out of like the first five. But um, – the, the the office of the presidency has evolved over time. You're definitely right there. In fact, the term president itself, when it first became um, used to describe um, the executive branch, we chose that term because it implied a, a, a humble nature. The, the, the concept of president does not carry the weight that it does today. When we use the word president today, it sounds like a big deal. When right. they used the word president in the 18th century, that meant like you're president of your local rotary club, right? Like, like it, it implied a relatively humble role. Um, Washington actually rejected some of these more ostentatious titles like his, his uh, majesty, the, you know, e executive, what, like, like there were all these like, like, like grandiose titles that were being thrown around at the beginning of the founding of our country uh, to describe what became the presidency. And we ended up choosing president because that was the least ostentatious title out of really? all of them. What yeah, it's just Mr. President. What a dichotomy between then and now. Yeah, it, it was something like, like one title that was thrown around was his electoral majesty. 
Really? And and somebody pointed out, like, okay, we're starting to create this, you know, concept that's like, you know, well, we don't want the president to come across as like the Holy Roman Emperor. This isn't somebody like we bow down at to. At that point in time, right. these men understood that the focus must be on the individual person to make progress. And if all yeah. of the attention was on them, nobody would make progress. Um, Very much so. And in fact... What happened over time was basically an evolution where Congress has gotten to – you can't talk about the rise of the power of the presidency without talking about the diminishing of the power of Congress because at the founding of our country, Congress was arguably the most important branch. Legislation had to go through Congress. Congress had to approve any sort of treaty with a foreign nation. Congress was the one that had the ability to reject or confirm presidential appointments to a host of offices. Congress was the one that would confirm Supreme Court seats that the president would nominate, but Congress, it was the Senate that had the power to appoint them, which is still the case today. Um, Congress was the arguably the most important of the three branches that are founding. Today, it's it's it, Congress doesn't do anything today. The presidency does everything. Um, I mean, Congress is probably less powerful than even the Supreme Court today. I mean, when you look at here's an example. Until just recently, a month ago, we had gone something like six years without a single amendment being allowed to be proposed on the floor of the House of Representatives. An unprecedented era in history under Paul Ryan and eventually Nancy Pelosi, who did it the most, barring members from being able to even do their jobs, which is why the dirty little secret that most people don't, don't know about is that members of Congress, when they were getting elected— they didn't do anything. They did literally nothing. That That's why when you would watch C-SPAN and nobody ever would, there'd be three people in the room in the House of Representatives. Yeah. For years, that chamber was empty, except when the president was giving a, a State of the Union address. That chamber would be completely empty. And the reason why is because you'd get elected to Congress and you couldn't do anything. I remember when Nick was running for Congress and people were telling him, well— you know, why are you running? You're not going to be able to do anything. And we knew that he wasn't going to be able to do anything under the way that those rules were written. And so the motivation to get Nick into Congress was because we wanted to give Nick a larger platform for him to espouse these ideas of liberty because we knew that under the way that the rules were written, unless we could throw Nancy Pelosi out of office and get a Republican speaker in and force them to amend the rules like we were able to successfully do this past month. But until that point happened, there was no ability for an individual member of Congress to do anything. They were all just rubber stamps for leadership. Or they were rabble-rousing Or they were there to shift the Overton window. Yeah, or they were rabble-rousing backbenchers yeah. that were there to try to shift the Overton window either on the extreme left or on the right. And we were hoping that Nick would be one of those eloquent speakers that could move the Overton window to the right. But right. in terms of actual tangible legislation being passed, we like again, you asked me earlier, could Coolidge do what he did in the 1920s? And the answer is no. And a huge chunk of the reason why is because Congress is dysfunctional. It literally can't – leadership has – has we're, we're rapidly turning into an oligarchy because leadership in both parties has consolidated almost all power in their own hands, in both chambers. We're rapidly moving in that direction because you have an entire political party that wants to eliminate the filibuster in the Senate. The minute that you eliminate the filibuster, all power will be in the hands of the majority leader, just like it is in the speaker in the House. And – I mean, what, what, that, that's just the direction. You know what it is to, to, to give like a, a fictional comparison that some people might laugh at and some people might cringe at? Our Congress is turning into the 
equivalent of the Galactic Senate in Star Wars. Oh boy, mm. that's terrifying. Walk us through that for a moment. So the the story that George Lucas came up with in 1977 when he came up with the first Star Wars, he hints at it in the original movie where there, there's this scene where Darth Vader and Tarkin walks into the meeting of, at the Death Star with the other generals of the Empire and they're talking about how, well, the rebels have captured the plans and we're in danger and, and they're going to keep gaining power in the Imperial Senate. And then Tarkin says, the Imperial Senate will no longer be of any concern of us. I just got word that the Emperor has dissolved the last remnant of the Old Republic. And that's the only time that it's really mentioned in that original movie. And then in subsequent movies, Lucas kind of expands upon this concept. But at the time, he actually kind of wrote the whole entire script for what he was talking about there. His idea was, and it was based off of, uh, in some ways, the collapse of the Roman Republic. His idea was is that at one point in time, there was this, this galactic senate where every single inhabited planet, every single system, every single nation state that made up his galaxy that he came up with sent representatives to that was on one planet that was kind of like the capital of the entire galaxy. And it was a, a Republican Senate where everybody would discuss things and they would vote on them. And, and it was a big building with thousands and thousands of people and eloquent debates. And it had this long and extravagant history. And it was a cherished institution that protected individual liberty and property rights and free, you know, free inquiry and enterprise. And then eventually, because it's such an unwieldy institution as democratic and Republican institutions inherently are over time. People get sick and tired of the debate. They get sick and tired of the, you know, 20,000 people in the building, all debating things all day long. And so they want to streamline the process, right? They, they want to, they, they decide to elect a chancellor that's going to oversee it rather than just have a bunch of people. The chancellor could be the equivalent of a president in this case. Right. Um, or it could be the equivalent of a, of a tribune if you're using the Roman example. And then over time, that chancellor can accumulate more and more power, usually for good in many cases. But eventually, you get a bad guy in office. In Lucas's case, this bad guy is Palpatine. It's Darth Sidious, right? And you know, Sidious gets into office, and he consolidates all the power in his own hands. And then he uses that power to create a bunch of emergencies and crises that enable him to accumulate even more power. And this culminates in the in the prequel trilogy with with Palpatine orchestrating a civil war and nobody knows that he's the one doing it. And then he uses this civil war as a justification to get rid of his own term limit, make himself permanently in office, create a big army to fight this civil war. And then he uses that army to then kill off the Jedi, which are the one institution that are powerful enough to stop him because he already has the Senate under his control. That's the whole order 66 thing. And then what, what does he do? He doesn't just make himself dictator for life like Caesar does. No, he goes full Augustus and he makes himself emperor. And then suddenly the, the Republican Senate, the Galactic Senate, now becomes the Imperial Senate. And it still has the same functions, but now everything's consolidated in the hands of one person. So what do you do as an Imperial Senator? Nothing. You just pass a bunch of resolutions honoring people, but you don't pass any legislation. You don't actually have any say in the day-to-day -day functions of government. And so over time the Imperial Senate becomes completely irrelevant. Nobody shows up to the building anymore. Nobody does their work anymore. You get a you get appointed to a senator, but you don't actually, you know, go into the building and legislate or anything. It's just a, it's just a, a title that you're given as part of a patronage system sure. to reward people. And eventually you get to a point when the original trilogy comes around where Palpatine feels powerful enough that he just abolishes the Senate. And now it's just a pure dictatorship ruled by just him alone. And I, I, I bring this up 
because Lucas was drawing upon actual history. He was drawing upon the collapse of the Roman Republic and, and the emergence right. of, of a dictatorship in the hands of an emperor. And he had this fear that something could happen. And so the story of Star Wars is politically infused with not just the, the personal heroic journey of people like Luke, but also this, this political sideshow that's not really just a sideshow. It's driving events behind the scenes. And it's it's a great story. It's it's a shame that Disney ended up destroying it when they took over. But that's a whole other topic for another day. In fact, it'll be a topic for a Y minute that we'll be talking about soon. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think that really, I really liked your Star Wars analogy, which is really saying something because I've been so grossed out by Star Wars, especially lately. But I always found it rather confusing. But your explanation makes a lot of sense, Christian. And what I'm seeing there is exactly what I'm worried about in the U.S. currently. And that is that we're putting all of this power into one person, which if, for example... I'm not saying this is what's happening here, but if you were to install someone in the presidency who was maybe confused or lacked full mental faculties, that would be a serious problem for your country because this person now has the power to decide everything. Or if they don't, you're in a position where, for example, they're being propped up by somebody whose name you don't even know, who's not an elected official, which is deeply concerning. And I think that the founding fathers were 100% right to disperse these powers between three different branches because that's probably the best way to keep these checks and balances in line. So what do you guys think we lose out on most of all when we put so much power on the role of the presidency? Like, I'm a big fan of checks and balances. What's probably the biggest loss we have from turning our president into, like, some glamorized celebrity form of a king? What do you guys think? Go ahead, Tina. What? <laughs> I filibustered way too much now. I got I to gotta open up the floor to you two. Christian. <laughs> well, I I think we lose. A- I think we lose a significant sense of individualism, um, mm-hmm. because and and a healthy individualism. I don't mean like a selfishness, uh, but I I just have I've met so many people in my life that place such a significant emphasis um, in their political ideology, in their you know even their emotions, as you know allowing that whoever's in office to dictate you know how their day is going. Oftentimes, yeah, and. And you know, it makes me sad. And I talk to people who I, I feel like are allowing politics to have too much of an impact on their own, um, you know, well-being. And I'm like, listen, like these people in D.C. of course are in important positions, but if all we're doing is concerning ourselves with what they are doing and not what we're doing in our own world, in our own town and family, I think that we we lose focus on what we're supposed to be focused on. I think there's definitely a balance because on one hand, you've got those of us who basically live and breathe politics. And, and it's one of the things that, that we might, you know, focus on and like get hyper, hyper focused on and obsessed with. And then on the other hand, you've got people that just don't care about politics at all. I mean, I know when I was uh, younger, my kids were really young. There was another mom And all she talked about was celebrity breakups and who's together in the celebrity thing. And she would just go on and on and on. But if I said anything about, oh, hey, you know, the president just did this X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. She's like, Tina, people don't care about that stuff. Like, that doesn't even affect me. I'm like, are you kidding me? I remember. Your your thing with your celebrity doesn't affect you at all. Yes, true. But the one thing I wanted to point out is that 
people who just don't want to be concerned with politics whatsoever should really take into account North and South Korea because in in South Korea people are more engaged with their with their political environment cuz they can be in North Korea you you've got a situation where you know you've got all the power dominated by the one person yeah. the great and, leader <laughs> right and in our own country like people seem to think oh well the america could never be that we are not special you guys yeah. it's the ideas that are special yeah. it's not like it's in it's not like it's in us to inherently not go after power and and put bad people in power and have bad policy no these it's all linked to the ideas so when you consider that Almost half the people in this country would really love it if we became like North Korea mm -hmm. and the other half really just wants to be left alone. That's a really concerning place to be. Yeah. Well, and so like politics cares about you and it affects sure. your life. It really does. And even the presidency really matters. I mean, they have he, the president has a tremendous amount of power at this point. I mean, even so we look at Trump. And people were like, oh, it's not going to matter if, if you vote for Trump. And I'm like, vote for Trump just for the justices. Come on. And I'm right. telling you, I told you so. We got three justices out of it. And that is affecting our life. And it yeah. will continue to affect our life point. You know, for a long time. So anybody who thinks it doesn't, I mean, you've got the Department of Agriculture. You've got the Department of Education. You've got... Uh, Various, Homeland Security. You've got various departments that fall under the purview of the president, and he can, with a stroke of a pen, like Obama used to like to brag about, um, he can make change, sweeping changes. And what I'd like to know is why can't the president eliminate those apart departments? Um, so the, the reason why the president can't just with a stroke of, of a pen, like eliminate, you know, these these agencies and departments is because they're enshrined in law. Um, and as we said earlier, like only Congress can pass laws, at least still, um, even if an individual member of Congress has basically no power, the institution itself still does. And it was those institutions that created things like the Federal Reserve and like all these different departments and agencies that the Congress then delegates to the executive branch to manage. Con this is another reason why members of Congress, to use the, the Lucas analogy, you know, the people aren't showing up for work and doing anything anymore because there's nothing to do. Because the legislature has delegated all the power to the executive. Even war point. powers at this point, they're like, we don't want to vote on that. That's not popular. Oh, yeah, Let's they, let the president decide they, it. They, they don't want to do anything because voting on things means that you have to put yourself on record. And I mean, the one thing that politicians don't like to do is put themselves on record for controversial things because they might get voted out of office. So it's better to do nothing and alienate nobody and offend nobody and coast your way through a you know great well-paying career. Notice how so many members of Congress enter as, you know, thousandaires and leave as multimillionaires. Um, so it it's better to do that and just skate under the surface and make people forget that you even exist and collect a nice salary and then a great pension and delegate all the responsibility of governing to some nameless, faceless bureaucracy, some alphabet agency that's managed by the presidency. And then when something goes wrong, you then get in front of TV and you say, you know, we're going to hold a hearing. That's not going to do anything. We're going to pass a resolution. Yeah. That does even less than holding a hearing. You know, I demand accountability and answers. You should be demanding accountability and answers from yourself, from your own institution that delegated these powers to the executive branch that are now misusing them. Hold a hearing. 
Hey, how about how about you take back some of the authority that you gave to the executive branch? That would that would actually go a long way to solving the problem. But nobody in D.C. wants to do that or very, very few people in D.C. want to do that. There, there are a few people that do. People like Thomas Massey actually are po- proposing bills outright abolishing some of these federal agencies that the executive branch has control over because they, there is no constitutional basis for some of them. There's no constitutional basis for there to be any federal intervention in education. That is the responsibility of the parent. And you could maybe get away with the argument and saying that it, it's a state-level responsibility. But increasingly, maybe. conservatives are realizing that, you know, when the state manages education at any level, you end up getting a bunch of woke Marxist nonsense imposed well, into that education system. Each state has system. its own constitution, and our constitution in Virginia mandates... Mm-hmm mandates education at the very least it should be handled at the state level right we have a federal department of education though almost the entire college system in the united states has been federalized especially through the student loan system and people like massey have bills that like one page bills one line bill saying the department of education will terminate operations in one year that bill will never get a hearing never get a vote certainly never get passed into law until we elect a majority of thomas massey's to congress which i mean i have no clue when that's ever going to happen so like it we're moving towards this this oligarchy, this this not rule by one, but rule by a few. And the the fear that I have, and I don't think I'll live to see it because these things take time. The the evolution of these things take a tremendous amount of time. And Lucas's universe, it took probably hundreds of years to get to to Palpatine and the Empire. And real life with the Roman Republic, it took a hundred years to go from the Gracchi brothers to Augustus. Well. Yeah, it took almost exactly 100 years to go from the Gracchi brothers to Augustus. So it, it, and it and it took 200 years to go from Augustus, more than 200 years, more like 280 years to go from Augustus to Diocletian. Um, so like this evolution of a Republican system of government devolving into an oligarchy and then devolving into a dictatorship, uh, it, that doesn't happen overnight, which is a big reason why I... I I disagree so strongly with people on the right that think that anytime a Democrat is in office, I know so many people that were like, Obama's a a dictator and people on the left, Trump's a dictator, Biden's a dictator. No, they're not. We're, we're, we're moving towards oligarchy, not dictatorship. It's going to take some time for us to get to the dictatorship phase of things. And I don't even think that we might ever get there because this whole house of cards will one day fall apart when we hit a sovereign debt crisis, which will eventually happen. That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> Tina, I, th- yeah. I, th- I think you brought up an interesting idea about how many people there are that do not care about politics. And that's something that is qu- like I-, I have questioned for a long time because I was the eighth grader in middle school who was arguing with the principal about Obamacare. And none of the other students around me cared. Right. And I only care because I at that point, because I was raised in a family where we were constantly discussing things like that. But I think that there would be a very interesting conversation to be had about how do we fix that? And if there is a way to fix it and what are the current problems that are in place that keep people from realizing that their activity in the political um, scene is helpful? Yeah, that actually we, leads right into my wrap up if we got if we're ready, yeah. unless you guys have anything more to add. Yeah. So I wanted to say, I think that as we close today's episode about President's Day, that it would be great to remember three different things um, on the anniversary of each President's Day going forward. Um, in the past, I was like, well, I don't really know what to do with this holiday. It's nice that the banks get a holiday, I guess. I'm not going to take time off. Not for Tina. I think that we, <laughs> what's that? 
Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. exactly. Tina found that out the hard way. Um, <laughs> I think that probably one of the most important things we can do here ties directly into what you and Tina were just talking about, Hamilton, which is that we need to remember that our vote actually does matter, but you can't place all your hopes on one person. Like we know for a fact that Obama wasn't a dictator and neither was Trump nor is Biden. They have more power than they initially did when the founding fathers were setting up the country. But we still need to take the responsibility of trying to have our voices heard by voting for who we want one in office. We also need to remember to embrace our own autonomy and responsibility. And that does mean voting. That also means getting involved. And it's hard, I know, for the people who really aren't engaged at all. And I definitely do think we need to do an episode about that for sure. Because it's very challenging for some people to shift into politics mode. And a lot of people just view it as too divisive. But on the bright side, something like 81% of people don't believe that you should judge a person's, you know, moral character based on who they voted for, which I think is a wonderful thing. Um, I don't see us fighting over this physically for sure anytime in the near future. But it would be really great to get people engaged with that. So hopefully we can remember that as well next President's Day. And on, on the last point, I wanted to say we should remember to vote to put people like Thomas Massey in office because he is going to be instrumental to giving Congress back their responsibilities. And I've been kind of grossed out by how lax they are. They don't even have to show up for a lot of these votes, which I'm sure for some people sounds like a dream job. But when you think about the fact that they're supposed to be like determining the fate of our future, kind of really unsettling. And the fact that they take a regular paycheck despite not even showing up, just disgusting to me. But I honestly think that if we did have more people like Thomas Massey, and it will take a long time, but we need to let them know that there's a, a there's a market for that. There are people who will vote for them and people who think it's really important, not only that we do things like pay attention to the national debt, but also to the idea that we need to keep Congress accountable. We need to give them back some of their own power, not just their own power, but their responsibility, not just to show up for work, but to take an interest in what's going yeah. on. Because I don't even understand why you'd put someone in Congress who really, you know, can't even be bothered to show an interest in what's going on. But those three things, remember to vote. Your vote does matter. Remember to embrace your own responsibility. And then remember to put people in office like Thomas Massey so we can yeah. reduce the role that the president has come to play in the right, past. Real quick before you wrap, Lydia, I want to apologize to everyone. Nick did try and join about five Tried. minutes ago and he he didn't have his airpods with him and he might have been walking down the street and there were cars going by and the audio was just it, it it wasn't usable so he did try and join he will be with us we hope on thursday i know this has been about two months of him not being with us in the studio in the podcast but we've tried to ensure that he is able to prioritize the people of virginia what they hired him to do in richmond and uh you know try our best over here and keep everybody entertained as best we can um and so i think uh session one or two weeks away from being over, right? I, I believe Friday's the last day. Wow. Oh, geez. And then y'all are going exciting. on vacation one week, so we will see. But he will definitely be back with us full time in March, probably the second week. So thank you for being patient and sticking with us. Yeah, for sure. Well, it would have been so great to have Nick on this episode. I hope we don't make him tear his hair out listening to this after the fact. And hopefully we gave you guys a little bit to think about because President's Day is, like I said before, one of those things that can slip by under the radar if we're not paying attention. But not paying attention is what put us in this mess in the first place. So let's do our best to get out of it. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Make sure you join us on Volley and we will see you all on Thursday.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.